Well, welcome back to the uh, Palview Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. My name is Trey Hinkle. I'm the uh, lead pastor here at Palview Christian Church in beautiful Central Oregon, where we have lots of snow that is kind of sticking around after uh, quite a cold weekend. Anyways, we are um, continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke, and it's very interesting because most most of the time churches will be hitting on the subject that we're going to be talking about today, the week before Easter. But the uh, problem with that, I find, is that if you talk about the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, on Palm Sunday, then you actually miss a whole lot of stuff that happens in between Jesus coming into Jerusalem and Jesus dying on the cross later that week. Um, you don't get to, to preach all of that. And since we're actually going through the Gospel of Luke and we want to hit everything that Luke has recorded for us, it's necessary for us to talk about Palm Sunday now in in February as we are uh, leading up to February 5th. So uh, it's it's going to be a little odd to talk about Palm Sunday, not on Palm Sunday, but I hope that it will make sense as we go along and it'll give us more time in between now and Easter to talk about all of the things that happened in that last week of Jesus. I'm going to open by asking a question. Have you ever been in a situation where you really needed help? Um, Maybe the situation got out of hand. It was too painful. You were trapped. Nothing you could do. You needed somebody uh, to come and and make things right. Okay. Now imagine a situation that, again, you're in that, that predicament and help does come, but you don't recognize the help. I'm sure you've heard the story about the guy who's stuck on his roof during the rising floodwaters, and uh, the the water kept getting bigger and bigger, and he knew that he was going to uh, be uh, overtaken by the flood eventually uh, if the flood kept uh, floodwaters kept rising. And so he prays, God, please, I have faith that you're going to rescue me. And uh, right after he said that prayer, a raft shows up, and the guy goes, you want to hop on? We, we can take you to safety. He goes, no, God's going to save me. And so they they leave him, and then uh, about 30 minutes later, as the water continues to rise, a boat shows up and says, hey, we're we're here to help you. Come and jump into the boat, and we'll help. And he goes, oh, no, no, that's okay. God's going to save me. And then finally, a a helicopter comes right, right right as the man is getting ready to be swept away by the flood. A helicopter comes down and, and they shout down with their, their megaphone. They said, we're going to throw down a ladder rope and uh, or a rope ladder, whatever it is. And, and we need you to uh, grab a hold of that and we're going to take you to safety. He goes, oh, no, 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 that's okay. God's going to save me. And then, of course, the floodwaters uh, wash him away and he dies. The scene then switches up to heaven and Jesus is there welcoming the man. And, and the man looks at Jesus and said, why didn't God save me? And Jesus said, listen, we sent a raft and a boat and a helicopter. What more did you want? So Israel, they kept being in need of help. You know, and by the way, this was their existence. So so many enemies throughout their existence in the land, the promised land that God had given to them. The Amalekites, the Moabites, the Philistines, the Midianites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. And then, and that's just all in the Old Testament. After the Old Testament comes the Syrians and the Greeks, and then finally the Romans. And and much of the Old Testament prophet's message 
to God's people. It was about how God was going to one day rescue them. He was going to save them. He was going to send a once and for all savior, a rescuer, a deliverer. He, he would be the Messiah, the anointed one, Mes, Mashiach in, in the Hebrew. Uh, in our language, again, Messiah. Um, and uh, in the Greek, Christ, who would come to save. So throughout the centuries, God's people were holding on to that hope that God was going to save them. So wouldn't it be ironic, like that story of the guy on his roof in the midst of this flood, wouldn't it be ironic if the help finally did come to help these people, but they missed it? You see, as we read in the gospel accounts, we see as Jesus begins his ministry, uh, which, by the way, was confirmed by all sorts of signs and wonders. You know, he's healing people and he's teaching the heart of God. Uh, those There were those who definitely saw him as the deliverer, but not everybody was convinced, especially those who didn't feel like Jesus was doing it right, that he wasn't on their side of the theological arguments. And, and then there were people who thought Jesus was the guy. They they thought that he they, they had found their Messiah, but eventually they're going to waver in their support because in the end, he didn't live up to their expectations. He didn't seem to be the type of king that they had been looking for. This morning, we're going to look at a, a remarkable event. Uh, Luke records this in chapter 19, starting in verse 28. It's the account of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. It's one of those significant events that actually all four gospel writers include in their narratives. So you know that it's important. Now, up to this point, Jesus wasn't real keen on being noticed by the public. He wasn't uh, seeking to attract large crowds. In fact, sometimes he would withdraw uh, from them instead of catering to them. Uh, he wasn't seeking public approval. In Matthew 16, um, he told his disciples once they said, you are the Christ, he says, don't tell anybody that, that that's the truth. After raising Jairus's daughter in Mark chapter 5, Jesus tells the family not to tell anybody what he did. In John chapter 6, after feeding the 5,000, the people wanted to make him king, but he escaped from them and he went far away where they couldn't get to him. But here, in this, in this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, now is the time, and I think that's why all four gospel writers include it, is now is the time for him to make himself known. He's making a very public proclamation as he enters into Jerusalem because the time had now come and he was now very intentionally turning their attention to his true identity as the Messiah. Now, at the time of the event, people were preparing for the Passover. Uh, thousands of Jewish pilgrims from all over the known world would gather in Jerusalem for Passover. From census information, in Jerusalem at this time, we know that over 250,000 lambs were slain every year at the Passover. Now, the law regarding the Passover said that there had to be a minimum of 10 people per lamb, which, which would bring the possible number of people in and around Jerusalem at Passover time to over 2.5 million people. So in the midst of this incredibly large religious celebration, Jesus presented the people with a picture where his claim of being the Messiah would be unmistakable. Unmistakable, Sorry. So let's read uh, from uh, chapter 19 of Luke, and uh, starting in verse 28. It says, When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, 
where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, uh, who were sent, went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I'm going to stop there, even though there's a few more verses. We're going to actually talk about that next week as well. But if you look back on the story, we're going to notice a lot of different things. Leading up to the story, crowds had gathered around Jesus in the town of Bethany. Uh, they had recently witnessed or heard of the resurrection of Lazarus, okay, because he was from Bethany. And now this mass of people are accompanying Jesus as he's making his way towards Jerusalem. As this crowd comes down to Jerusalem with Jesus, another crowd was coming up out of the eastern gate from Jerusalem to see Jesus. And so these two groups are converging together. The, the people coming out of the city, they had taken branches of palm trees, and they were going out to meet Jesus as he approached the city, crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save us, right? Uh, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, is this just a simple story about people excited that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to visit them? Well, for some people, that might seem like that, that's all it is. But there's actually something much more significant happening that would have been very obvious to those there that day witnessing the event. First of all, of great significance was the route that Jesus took. So in his approach to Jerusalem, he was coming down from the Mount of Olives, which was just east of Jerusalem. If you look on a map, you'll see the Mount of Olives is east of Jerusalem. Now, there was significance to God's people in this deliberate action. Because, you know, back in the Old Testament, God's glory at one point actually leaves the temple. Uh, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel in, in chapter 10 uh, sees God's glory leaving the temple. But then uh, in chapter 43, Ezekiel is given a vision where he was transported to the east entrance of the temple. And there he witnessed the glory of God coming back to the temple from the east. Now, the crowds that would have been welcoming Jesus that day would have taken note of the direction from which Jesus was entering into the city. And this prophecy of God's Spirit coming back to his people, to the, the religious center of his people, would have been totally on their mind. Now, by the way, did you know that the eastern gate into the temple, into the city, is shut to this day? The Ottoman Turks closed it off that eastern gate in 1541. Why? Well, it's it's close to their Dome of the Rock. They, they built the Dome of the Rock on top of the Temple Mount. They knew that the Jewish scriptures uh, had predicted that the Messiah would come through that gate back into the city to establish his reign. And so they sealed it. They, they turned it into, by the way, a, a Muslim graveyard there because 
they knew that it was forbidden for any Jewish priest to come into contact with a cemetery. So in their minds, this was going to prevent a Jewish Messiah from entering into the city. So it is still closed to this day. Now, what they didn't get and what they still don't understand is that in the presence of the author of life, an old graveyard is not going to stop Jesus from coming back. Okay, When the author of life comes up, that graveyard is not going to be a graveyard anymore because the dead will rise. So this route that Jesus is taking, coming down from the Mount of Olives into the city with this triumphal parade, it was significant. The route was significant. The route was significant. But secondly, so was the ride that Jesus took. The route that he took was significant. The ride was significant. See, Jesus told his disciples to go into Bethphage and get a colt. Now, a colt was actually a young donkey. I I know that sometimes we use that terminology to talk about a young horse. But it was a young donkey, this colt, that had never been ridden. Now, again, the Jews would have known this because in the Old Testament, when you're talking about an unused animal, an animal that had not been broken yet, that was often used for sacred purposes. Numbers 19.2, if you want to look that up, or Deuteronomy 21.3. First Samuel six seven. So so the use of an unused animal was another indication about the sacred nature of what was happening here as Jesus was coming into the city. In addition, whereas a conquering king that, that was actually bent on conquering uh, would enter a city riding a horse, a, a king that was riding a donkey would be saying, I'm coming in peace. And the people would have remembered a prophecy from Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, don't be, don't, don't mistake this. Jesus is not saying that he's this weak king, right? In Revelation 19, we're going to see that Jesus one day does return on a white horse, a conquering king, definitely, to be the king of kings and the lord of lords. He's going to bring eternal and complete victory on that day. But on this day, he's not coming to smash heads. He's not even coming to bring judgment on his people. He was coming to bring peace. And they even noticed this, though I'm not sure that they would have actually understood what they were saying when they said peace in heaven. See, that's the peace that Jesus was coming to bring to them. Peace with God. He was going to close the gap that sin had created between the people and their God. He was peace in heaven. That's what he was coming to bring to his people. So the route was significant. The ride was significant. And so they should have understood what was going on, but they missed it. They missed it. Something happened that would turn their cheers into jeers. Something would happen that would turn the Hosanna into hurled insults. Something would happen that would turn the shouts of crown him to crucify him just a few days later. It's going to be obvious by their eventual rejection of Jesus that what they were looking for, this is not what he was bringing to them. He was not bringing them what they were hoping for, what they were thinking Though the route was correct, though the ride was keeping in with with prophecy, the redemption was something different than what they had anticipated. It was something that they had totally misunderstood. 
Now, by the way, I've always thought it interesting that Christianity has celebrated this day, Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, Resurrection Sunday. And so many churches, they, they bring in the palm branches and they sing Hosanna songs. But what's been interesting to me is the fact that we are celebrating the people getting it wrong. Yes, they were honoring him as a king. They were putting down their cloaks in front of the donkey. They were waving the branches. They were quoting the scriptures that prophesied the the, the coming Messiah. But just like the raft and the boat and the helicopter, help was on its way, but they were not seeing the kind of help that Jesus was bringing to them. You see, it's clear, folks, it's clear that Jesus's purpose is a spiritual purpose. He's going to confess before Pilate, the Roman governor, that his kingdom is not of this world. He's going to tell his followers that the kingdom of heaven is within them. You see, as bad as political oppression is, there's a greater oppression that mankind has fallen under. And yes, it can be uh, represented by worldly oppression. It could be represented by Rome or or enslavement in Egypt. It it could be represented by a 70-year Babylonian exile where the the city of Jerusalem is demolished and the temple torn down. See, all of those things are real. And they really happen to God's people. But those aren't the problem. See, those are just mere shadows of what the real problem is. The real problem at the heart of it all. You see, the true oppression of our sinful, uh, of, of our, sorry, the, the true oppression is our sinful nature. The true oppression is our fall into death, spiritual death, the consequence of our sin. You see, sin and death are hanging over mankind like an anvil, just threatening to crush us. And every time Israel would succumb to the temptation of following after other gods, false gods, they would fall under oppression. And every time they would cry out and God would send them a deliverer, every time one of those men and women came to help God's people, that was a foreshadowing of the ultimate deliverer, of the ultimate oppression. That deliverer and that king would be coming from the east, riding on a donkey, a a colt, the fold of a donkey, not to rescue them from Rome, but to rescue them from sin and death. So what the people on Palm Sunday got wrong, we have a chance as God's people to get right, thanks to the Holy Spirit, who gives us insight as we look back. For even though their understanding of the nature of his kingship was off, now what they did by acknowledging him and adoring him as king is something that we should also be involved with, but this time in truth. Yes, the Spirit is there, but also we need to have it in truth. You see, the answers to the struggle in this life, we are told by this world, can be found in this world. We are told that any problems we have can be found through human means. We are told that the problems of this world can be solved through governments, through financial investments, through some kind of meeting of the minds. But they've been telling us this for how long now? You would think that if the solution could be found in the United Nations or putting the right guy in office or somehow getting rid of individual rights to, to make everybody better. If, if all of those things would work, if any of those things would work, we would have found utopia by now. And, and sadly, what I find, what I have found in my ministry is that Christians easily fall into this trap. 
Many Christians believe that if they can just elect the right people who who would enact the right laws, then everyone would just open their eyes and see the light. And, and if that worked, man, that would be amazing. Don't get me wrong. That would be amazing. But here's the deal. Again, Jesus plainly stated that the king, his kingdom was not of this world. The early Christians were effective in reaching people with the gospel apart from having any allies in the government. In fact, if you studied the history of Christianity from its beginnings in the New Testament, you'll see that when it became sanctioned as a state religion of Rome, that's when corruption began in the leadership of the church. <coughs> Jesus warned us in Matthew chapter 20. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. What what about that do we not get? What about that statement do we just get wrong all the time? We want to lord it over people so that we can change this world. But Jesus says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. (coughs) Excuse me. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The people of God wanted help. And they were crying, Lord, save us, Hosanna. And heaven sent Jesus to the rescue. But just like the raft and the boat and the helicopter, the people didn't get on board. They were looking for another way of rescue. And that's what I believe too many people today get wrong as well. You see, church, the only way to change what is happening in this world is to introduce people to the gospel of Jesus and to allow his spirit to convict them of their sin, to transform their hearts, to be in submission to his rule in their lives. Changed hearts will always equal changed behavior. And changed behavior, as that continues to grow, that will help change the world. That's the raft and the boat and the helicopter. That's why Jesus says he is the only way. He is the only way. So instead of clamoring to make Jesus king of the world, we as his people should be declaring to those around us that he's king of our lives. In other words, what the people got wrong, we can get right. The hosannas that we sing can be our demonstration of our own submission to his reign and rule in our own lives, no matter what anybody else in this country or this world does. Now, will everybody be happy and pleased that you're doing that? No. Will everyone get behind your declaration of whose side you're on, whose truth you're going to fight for? No. Oddly enough, there will be people who themselves, they don't submit to God, but they're going to have a problem with you submitting to him as well for some weird reason. I mean, for in this scene that's played out when Jesus comes into Jerusalem for his final week before the cross, there are people who have a problem with these people declaring Jesus as king. In the midst of the cheers, there were leaders of the people who are going to reject Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. They've heard the people shouting about a king, and maybe in fear of retaliation from Rome, they rebuke the praise. Shut up. Stop making a big deal. You, you wonder why the, the noise of the atheists grows in our culture today? You know, it's again, it's strange to me. If you don't believe, that's fine, but... Why do you have such a problem if I believe it? Why does that matter to you? It's almost in our world as if it has become personal to these 
antagonists, these people who are against the gospel. But how can something be personal to you if you don't believe in that person? (laughs) Could it be maybe that our declaration of faith makes them nervous because there is still the possibility that we are correct and that they're wrong? You see, I know that the Jewish leaders were nervous with all the racket going on because, again, what if Rome finds out? What What if they come down on us? So let's keep this quiet so it doesn't look like a revolution. But isn't that what they needed? Aren't they, I mean, are they really okay with Roman charge? No, they're not. They needed a revolution. They wanted a revolution. But they can't let Jesus be the one that leads them in the revolution because he wasn't playing by their rules. He's convicting them of what they had got wrong because they had put themselves in charge. And I believe that that's why atheists are so um, evangelical in their stance, wanting more and more people to be on their side because they don't want to be reminded that they have put themselves on the throne. And maybe that's not what reality is all about. So the people who are opposing say, just shut up. But Jesus says they can't. Because even if they were able to keep quiet, that would not stop the praises from happening because even the stones would cry out. In other words, he's saying, you know what? It doesn't matter because truth will out. Truth will be truth. Truth ultimately will never be silenced. The world has tried, believe me. Throughout the centuries, they've tried to silence the gospel. They have imprisoned and executed outspoken believers. They have shamed people for standing by their convictions. They have banned God's word in certain places. They've attempted to invalidate its truth in others. But one thing cannot be stopped, and that's the praises and the worship of God's people. And this is where rubber meets the road for me, I believe. You see, in Jerusalem, the disciples rejoiced in the book of Acts, because they were punished for spreading the gospel. Also in the book of Acts, we see in the Philippian prison, Paul and Silas, they had had their freedom taken away. They were in jail. But what were they doing? Not arguing, not shouting. They were praising God. Jesus is telling his detractors here at this triumphal entry scene that you cannot drown out God's worship, God's praises. No government, no army, no demon can silence the response that creation has. Even the rocks have when in the presence of its creator. Persecution cannot silence it. Not in Somalia, not in Iran, not in China, not in Pakistan, not in North Korea, nor anywhere else that violence and intimidation is brought against the followers of Jesus. God's word proclaims and history confirms that the worship of God will continue forever. Perversion in the church cannot silence it. Throughout church history, when false teachers would gain a foothold in and among God's people, the Spirit of God has always called out to those who have ears to hear, as Jesus would say, time after time after time, and bring them back to the essence and the truth of the gospel. See, God has promised a remnant will always be there. A remnant will always hold on to the truth. And he will continue to raise up that remnant, that remnant who will give him praise above all others. Can you imagine who was in the crowd that day as Jesus enters into Jerusalem? That The stories of the power and the compassion of God outweigh any question that skeptics can throw. 
In the crowd that day was a blind man who was no longer blind. In the crowd that day would have been a paralytic who had been told to pick up his mat and walk, and he was able to do so. Mary Magdalene, who had been freed from bondage to seven unclean spirits, was there. Matthew, who had given up his whole lifestyle, his traitorous ways, and had been given pardon when he followed Jesus. Zacchaeus, who had been freed from a a, a bondage of greed and dependence on money. Lazarus, who had been dead and now is alive. See, you can't silence those stories because those stories are worship of who our God is. Their testimonies are undeniable. By the way, so is your story. How you were one way and now how you are a totally different way. And the thing that came between those two things is him. People will try to silence you. People will try to argue with you. People will try to put you down. Darkness has always tried to overpower the light. But with a king such as our king, Jesus, greater is he that is in us, changing us, empowering us to live the law that God wrote on our hearts than he that is in the world. And so the power of our praise is the thing that we must understand can never be silenced, can never be made impotent. Jesus' entry into the city tells us what kind of king he came to be, by the way, a servant king. Here was the second person of the Godhead who had enjoyed equality with God, now giving himself over to his enemies. Here was the divine, now the very picture of humility, riding on a donkey. This is what it means when we tell you that God is love. Because love is not arrogant. It's not boastful. It's not self-seeking. It's humble. It places the welfare of the beloved above itself. Jesus is God's love, emptying himself of himself, in humility, taking on flesh, living among his people, fully immersed in our struggles and our pain and our strife. And that love had a purpose. And that's why he came into the city. And that's what made his entry triumphal. Though it would lead to death on a cross, the triumph would come as he by his death, would defeat death. His central purpose is the crux of all human history. The cross was his destiny, for in that cross and the empty tomb came healing and reconciliation that we as mankind could never accomplish on our own merits. And so that leads us to our own Hosanna. Hosanna, God save us, can be our song today as well. You can join in the song that praises him as the one who comes into your life, with the authority of God making you right with God once and for all. And you can experience the freedom from the sinful nature as Jesus becomes your king. Wherever you're listening, by the way, I know that there will be a Bible-believing and Bible-teaching church. And if you have not yet found that church, I would encourage you. It's great that you're listening to the podcast. I, I'm, I'm honored and humbled that you do listen to this podcast. But ultimately, I cannot be your sole pastor. You need to find a church that can pastor and help grow your faith. And so as you continue to listen to this podcast, that's great. But I would encourage you to begin to find a place where you can connect your life with other believers. Because Hosanna can be all of our songs. And as we lend our voices to the 
big song, as we all lend our voices, that becomes stronger and our testimony and our faith remains uh, the strength that God wants it to be. So don't let a rock cry in your place, Hosanna. You have a testimony, you have a story, but that story is only going to be powerful when you are able to to share it with other people. So please find a church. Please find a place of, of worship that you can have other people come alongside of you. And that's just kind of something wasn't even in my notes, but something that God put on my heart. So I want to thank my team, Lisa Welly and, and uh, Steve Pittman, uh, for uh, just giving me the opportunity and the, um, the uh, technology to be able to reach out to a, a wide audience out there. Uh, may God bless you this week as you continue to live for him. And uh, let's let our lives be Hosanna to him.